Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. And incidentally, because I think I forgot to say this before, our signature music is Pineapple Rag by the great Scott Joplin. Now, this week we're discussing conservation, not in the sense of environmental conservation, but the care of artifacts or made things. In the past on this programme, we've talked about creativity, but the work of creative artists and craftsmen is dependent on many others for its realisation, dissemination and survival. People like stage managers, editors, engineers, patrons, the makers of musical instruments. Material works of art and what we now call heritage are subject to all kinds of damage and decay. Conservators are the people whose job it is to protect or restore these artefacts and structures for the use and enjoyment of people in the future. They are technicians, but they also have to be historians and scholars and artists in their own right. After all, some artefacts can be ruined rather than renewed by the act of conservation. And their work raises important and sometimes difficult questions about origins and authenticity and aesthetic choice. And some of these questions I hope we can discuss today. So I welcome two very distinguished conservationists, Marie-Louise Sauberg used to be assistant to the director of the Fitzwilliam Museum at Cambridge and a member of the conservation department at Westminster Abbey in London. She's now the director of K&S Limited Painting and Sculpture Restoration for, for private clients and galleries. And Larry Keith is a scholar of painting and conservation and director of collections at London's National Gallery. Um, Marie-Louise should I say conservationist or conservator? Which do you prefer? We usually say conservatives, but uh, restorers is also good. Restorers. Mm. Okay. I'll try and remember. Um, so let's start by thinking who the people are who do this thing. If I wanted to become a conservator or restorer, how would I go about it? What kind of training do I need? Um, the conservation programs in England are usually post-grad. Uh, that means that everybody who starts the course will have had some kind of first degree. And at the Hamilton Carr Institute, where I worked in Cambridge, we um, usually got a very high proportion of art historians wanting to go into the physical sides of what they were studying. Um, but we also got a great number of fine artists, uh, people who were already painting in their own right. And then we would get a uh, a, a smaller number, but a significant number of scientists, of chemists, of physicists who would come in. So quite a range of, of talents. Because the, there's obviously an aesthetic side to what you do, but there's also a very technical, sometimes mm -hmm. very specialised yeah, uh, technical side of it too. Yeah. So what do you, as you've trained such people, how, what do you mm -hmm. teach them? Um, one thing is that we try and level out what the, the skills that they come in with. So let's say the fine artists are very good uh, manually, or, uh, often they can paint already, but maybe their chemistry isn't quite up to scratch. So we give them a bit of extra <laughs> chemistry and, and physics. It's actually quite difficult to find somebody who's yes. skilled both in, in fine arts and in chemistry, given most yeah. school systems. Yeah. Right. That, that's where we hope that they will end up mm. being sort of qualified in, in both. Okay. And the other way around, the chemists may not have done an awful lot of practical work, yes. so we will get them started on um, in the first year 
at the Hamilton Kai Institute, we pretty much give over to reconstructions of old masterpieces. So you get to know a work of art from the inside out. So they start with, let's say it's a panel painting. You will start mm-hmm. with a panel, then we will put on the ground, then you'll do the gilding, then so you'll do the making, painting. making actually an making, artifact. Yeah. So you understand it. A bit like a doctor would do an autopsy. Something this you know the, as, a, as a student. This of, is the reverse of reverse engineering. In fact, <laughs> you do. Okay, and what what sort of um, uh, never mind the skills? What sort of a person are you looking for? What do you want? What are the qualities that make for a good? I could put this question to either of yeah. you. Make for a good um, restorer or conservator. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Presumably, a historical sense. I like to think of it. Slightly, or sometimes it makes sense to talk of, of a restorer or conservator as a sort of detective. It has to, there's, an, uh, there's mm. a sort of intellectual side to this, definitely. So research skills. Yeah, research skills, mm-hmm. but also you have to be good manually. You cannot be a restorer and just work on your mind. So it's a sort of marriage of hands and heads. It's something that I think mm. I, I've often described, the satisfaction I get from the work mm. having to do with engaging my brain mm. and, and in different ways with different kinds of problems depending on what I'm working on and what its demands are. But the answer, the core answer is expressed through your fingers. Mm. Yeah, and and mm. you can write about it and speak about it, of course, but you have to really understand and get that satisfaction, I think, from doing it. Uh, and you have to really want that craft <coughs> element, I think. is If you don't find that satisfying, then... It's not the job for you. And, and the other thing I think that's important about it, though, is at least, you know, I think we're both largely talking now about the tradition of working uh, on Western paintings, although not exclusively. Mm-hmm. But um, I can't help but feel that the best restorations and the best treatments are the ones that the viewer doesn't see. Mm-hmm. So that's also a thing that distinguishes us from, from artists, I think. Um, so we really don't want you to be aware of where we've been so, you have to have uh, so there has a certain reticence about it. I professional think. modesty. You yeah. you want to if if it worked properly, then your work is invisible. Yes. Well, certainly not in the forefront. You're mm-hmm. you're serving the work. Yes. Uh, and I think that's a key distinction. So it's a funny mix, I think, of all these manual, uh, uh, objective, and aesthetic skills, but it's all rather quiet uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the the final product. Did yeah. you actually come into the job? For, were you an art historian first? That was my first. And interest. you, really? Mm. Art historian, but I did take some additional chemistry just mm. to get myself up to okay, scratch. Yeah. Good. I mentioned this in the introduction. I want to raise the question of authenticity, and perhaps uh, with you, Larry. Uh, this is a big question for a conservator and a restorer. What is, and it's a philosophical question, I guess. What is the authentic work of art? And related to that, the question would be, what is it? All right, what is it that you're trying to do? Take, imagine a, a picture, okay, which is brought to your office by the gallery or whatever it is. Conserve that. Go ahead. What do you think you're doing when you set to work? Hmm. Well, yes, I think we're trying to... Well, I guess I should start off by saying that uh, authenticity is... Uh, well, it's a variable concept, I think. And I, I think, again, I'll be speaking more about essentially old master painters. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to understand that um, they've changed and they continue to change. Uh, the materials change. Um, the, the evidence of subsequent treatments change. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, decline and discoloration and... Uh, things that happen that um, you can't actually reverse. So uh, I first would like to say that 
uh, a restoration is not intended to bring an old master painting back to its original state. Because that, no, most people would think that that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. No, we're trying to kind of, uh, how would I say, manage the change. And mm -hmm. there's, an, there's an editing involved. You think of us as editors, really. Uh, and um, there are aesthetic choices. You may find that uh, at different times in history, for example, the varnish is applied uh, or maybe I should go back and say, normally if you have a three or four hundred year old painting come into a studio, it's probably been restored many times. And I think people often don't understand that. They think of them as kind of a received text on the wall mm. of the museum. Mm -hmm. But they've had a pattern and a life of change themselves. And so often we're dealing with uh, uh, the effects of previous restorations. And so let's say a varnish that's been applied to a painting has changed a lot, it's degraded and discolored, become yellow, become foggy in a way that makes it hard to understand, um, to read the picture underneath. But now, then isn't it your job, sorry to mm -hmm. be crude about this, isn't it your job then to remove that varnish and to restore what was there when the painter painted it? Well, we might change the varnish, we might remove or reduce or thin the varnish and we might take off old restorations that have themselves discolored. Uh, but I guess we'd have an awareness, for example, that some of the colors in the painting once uh, made more visible by the cleaning uh, will have changed in different ways and we have mm -hmm. to try and kind of manage that and not try and correct for those the certain kinds of changes that we don't wish to correct and we have to uh, explain and interpret um, and I think the one of the key elements now is that although I would say that the subjectivity I mean the aesthetic element of a restoration today is as strong as it ever was mm -hmm. it is now I think to a greater extent than ever before uh, underpinned by a, a objective scientific analysis in terms of we can understand how our materials will react, you know, what our varnishes are, what the solvents are, the precision with which we can um, uh, approach a cleaning uh, and understand the materials we use in our retouching, stability, environment, all those things, you know, give us more control over what we're doing. But that's not to deny that what we're doing is ultimately uh, a series of aesthetic choices. I just want to <clears throat> jump in with um, there's also the immediate damage that happens, for example, say a painting is torn. Mm. And when I worked in Cambridge, um, we got a lot of paintings in from the various colleges that had been subjected to, for example, during moving, a, a filing cabinet would have gone through a painting. So yeah. we also take care of such things, or removing ketchup from the footholds from from, <laughs> <laughs> from various God. paintings. So, so it, it is, there's a wide range of it, and uh -huh. some of it is quite immediate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. there's always a sort of triage, I think, yeah. of something that's that the paint's flaking or has mm -hmm. had an accident. Yeah. The fact that artifacts artifacts change, mm -hmm. that they are themselves historical as well as just being old. Um, if I'm editing a, if I'm doing an edition of a book, I suppose what I'm trying to do is to go back to as near as possible to the text intended by the, the guy who wrote it. Mm. But with a building, for example, mm. say you've got a building that's 500 years old, it's had many different characters, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. It's been added to, bits have been knocked down. Mm -hmm. um, so in a sense, there isn't, if, if you were given the job of, restoring a building how the hell do you do it i mean what mm. uh, are you do you fix on do you think you fix on a particular phase of the building and try and do that you how can you be true to it i did a bit of that work um, i've worked with, with some cathedrals in england and then most notably westminster abbey and there there are policies that are laid down more or less by the clergy also so for example 
in Westminster Abbey there's more than 3,000 uh, memorials yes. for the great and the good from mm. the 13th century onwards. Mm. And the graves, all the memorials that are laid down on the floor will be worn down over time. Yes. Sometimes we, we um, come in and re-chisel say the inscriptions or repaint them sometimes we don't some some Mm. inscriptions have gone we know from records from the 18th century um, people would have gone round and would have written down absolutely every inscription and some of them are no longer there they have Mm. been worn away by by visitors so there's certain things that we will allow or the, the abbey will allow natural decay but we also do what we can with mass tourism, for example. That's a hugely uh, damaging uh, yes. factor in any historic building. So what you try and do um, as a conservator is to look at how do they move around the building, what kind of uh, – how do they influence the environment they are. And going back to what you said about not being visible, if, if our job as the conservation department in the Abbey was well done, nobody would notice that they are being conserved or guided mm-hmm. through the building and won't sort of erode the, the stone, the very friable stone often. So. Don't you feel that the building would be much better if nobody came to visit it? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> if they turn off the lights, stick it underground, it will survive for a very long time. But one other sort of unprofessional question of that, of, of that kind. Go ahead. You don't have to answer this. But aren't you sometimes tempted to improve? Yes, I think, that, I think we, we shouldn't be. And like uh, Larry said earlier, if you have a budding artist inside you who really yes, wants to change things exactly. and then restoration is is not the job for you but of you course um, it is picture editing we just hoped it is as discreet and as true to the nature of the original building or artifact or painting as it as it possibly can we do want the artworks to shine so when you go in to a building or when you look at a painting what you look at is the painting or the building, not the job of the conservator. So, well, what you look at is, is what remains. Yes. I was thinking of the, these great nineteenth-century archaeologists, early twenty-century archaeologists, mm-hmm. like yes. Evans at Knossos, who, yes, who re-decided yeah. what yes. it, what the palace should have looked like, yes. and then built that. Yeah, wow! And <laughs> well, <laughs> was I able think... to get away with it then, but <laughs> Just now, now would be locked up, I suppose. Well, <laughs> one of the keys where paintings are concerned, though, is that uh, I mean, there's the history of restoration teaches you anything. It teaches you that the period eye is something mm-hmm. that's always present. Um, Sorry, so the, the, the period, period eye, I mean, what, what seems eye. objective and uh, part of a kind of cultural okay. consensus about what's appropriate uh, seems often less appropriate 50 or 100 years sure. later. Mm-hmm. An idea about uh, if there's a large loss, uh, you might invent something mm-hmm. just because you think it looks nice. Or if you find a uh, content of a painting inappropriate, too violent or too sexual, you might do something mm-hmm. in, in restoration to, to change that. And uh, things that we would today find you know, outside of the – beyond the pale in terms of our decision-making – uh, but, of course, I, I don't think we could, should ever be too smug about what we do now. But one mm-hmm. thing I can say is that uh, the standards of documentation and the kind of materials we use, certainly in our restorations, our retouchings, uh, are such that um, if my successors, I hope a long time in the future, uh, find the kind of work we've done objectionable, I'm very confident it can be quite easily removed mm-hmm. and right. take you back to that core okay. uh, artifact and that allows, again, all sorts of interpretive chances after. That, that's that's mm. very interesting. Okay. And, and I want to get down to real specifics okay. and ask you each to talk about one artifact, 
But Marie-Louise, you've worked in Westminster Abbey and famously in Westminster Abbey. This is the coronation chair. Um, the coronation chair is a chair which was finished around thir- the year 1300. And basically, it is a chair that is built around the famous stone of Scone, which is a coronation stone or inauguration stone that came from Scotland and that had been used for centuries already when, in 1292, Edward Longshanks, Edward I, took it from the Scots when he beat them. I'm sorry, I know you're a Scotsman, but anyway, he <laughs> oh. took it. And so this is a slab of it's a slab, a slab of, stone. of stone, yeah, okay. which is from Scone. We, we know that it's mm-hmm. very close to, to that place. Okay, so it's Scottish a, it's a trophy of war, but it's also it a sacred is. object. Yes, it is, and it goes back centuries mm-hmm. already in, in 1296. So he brings it back to Westminster and he sets about almost immediately to ask his best craftsman to make a metal chair, basically a reliquary chair. Oh, it's metal. That's what he originally oh. intended, but then he, he'd been to too many battles and there wasn't much money in the, in the chest, um, in the treasury then. So what he, he, he changes his mind uh, very soon after, I think 1296, and then he, he makes it out of wood gilded wood, as it were. So when it was finished, it would have looked like it was made of metal. But and it encloses it the, the it, sacred stone. Yeah, absolutely. It's a reliquary uh, uh, chair, if you like. Okay. So, and it doesn't so start off as a coronation chair, but it starts off as a real mark of England sitting on Scotland, as it were. A very symbolic object. Very, very, Right. Yeah. What did you have to do? Um, I had to restore it. The Queen Elizabeth was uh, the last monarch to have been uh, crowned on it and that was she in, sits in the chair she sits, when she's yeah, it's actually, her coronation it's the chair where the crown and the royal the, the uh, what do you call it, regalia is handed to her while mm-hmm. she sits so she okay. is crowned in the chair and anointed while in the coronation chair um, that was in 1953 in June that's a long time ago and her diamond jubilee this 60 year anniversary of the coronation uh, came up and it was in preparation for that. Uh, usually, uh, there would have been a coronation before that, and that's the time when the chair has been looked at in the past 700 years. A new coron- coronation will spark a restoration or um, a look at the chair. And this time, it was actually her diamond uh, jubilee, so that was the reason why we looked so at it. Was it. Sixty years, it was a bit sixty years. Tatty. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What, did, what did you do to it? Um, we surface cleaned it as gently as we could, but a lot of the work, again, was unseen. We made sure that it was structurally safe. Things have happened to it over the last uh, 700 years, and uh, the stone of Schoon was removed. In 1996, it was given back to Scotland um, with the proviso that it would be brought back um, for any future coronations. But the fact that they moved about 300 kilos uh, is that right? So 300 kilos that from underneath the chair meant that the whole chair had sort of changed. So we looked at very discreetly reinforcing the chair. In Are you the working space. on the wood? We're working on the wood. Did you put in new bits? We did. We put um, in the area where the just underneath the seat, um, where the, 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 the stone of school was originally uh, placed, mm-hmm. we inserted... Um, a new grid, as you were. There's sort of uh, quatrefoils enclosing that space, that actual reliquary space underneath the chair. And the front of it, this sort of lace work, has had been missing, actually, for 200 years. But we decided to reinstate it because not only would it look 
sort of more harmonious. You, you knew yeah. what it looked like. We knew we knew what it looked like. There were drawings mm-hmm. and um, of it, and you and it follows the whole way around. So this is like a like a space. screen with with yes. holes in. Yes, so as it were. Yes, it is. <clears throat> so you put that. We see, put th- that this back. Is, yeah. gets back to this question of authenticity. Mm. Yes. Yep. You put that back, mm-hmm. though it had been missing for, for yes. two hundred years. Yep. Yep. Okay, good. And you did more to the structure of the yeah. chair. We did it. Reinforced we, it. I should say it was after a lot of discussion, and it is very neatly done by the um, carpenter we had. Mm-hmm. Basically, it can all be removed. Um, it's it's there without any glue. What kind of anything. wood is it? It's also oak. All of it is oak, uh-huh. and it is English oak, as far as I remember. Congratulations. Mm. <laughs> so now it's fit for purpose. Now be. it's fit for purpose. The next coronation yes. is not going to be yeah, any they're not going to go accidents. through it. No. Because the, the chair has never been outside the abbey, we did it on site. And we did okay. it inside one of the, the chapels, so the um, on full view for all the visitors, so they could follow our work. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Larry Keith, the, the Leonardo... Virgin of the Rocks. This is a super famous and important painting. You must have been terrified. Um, well, I think the thing I would stress about a treatment like that at the National Gallery was that it it grew out of uh, more than 10 or 15 years' work by a whole collection of colleagues. And I think one of the key things that gives you more confidence or gives you uh, helps you, is essential actually to doing a treatment like that, is the fact that there's a culture in the museum of approaching such a such a task uh, by working closely together between conservators, scientists, and curators at the gallery. So, for example, the National Gallery has more than 20 paintings uh, painted by associates of Leonardo when he was working in Milan, um, people he had trained, people he had sort of subcontracted works with, people working in his style and various degrees of uh, assimilation and understanding. And we started restoring some of those pictures and studying them okay. for a period of about a decade before. So we really had a good institutional awareness about uh, what kind of aesthetic issues would come up, what the changes might be, what the techniques were, what the materials were. And that helped enormously in contemplating uh, our Leonardo painting know, what were the issues and what were the likely changes to be and the outcomes? Uh, um, what did you actually do? Well, I think the cleaning of the painting was um, essentially driven by aesthetic concerns and that the varnish that was on it had become very, very yellow and very foggy. Okay. When uh, was it last restored? Do you know that? Uh, yes, it was restored in the 19... from memory, the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the varnish that was chosen at the time uh, had for whatever reasons, or the technical reasons behind that, uh, had become very yellow and it had, uh, also had a, a layer of wax applied on top which had imbibed an awful lot of dirt, so it had got quite foggy. Just to protect it? Yeah, it was, the intention was to protect it, but it, um, it actually didn't really work so well in this case, I think. Uh, and that was a time when the gallery didn't have the same degree of atmospheric uh, uh, pollution mm. controls and relative humidity and, controls. And this affects the colour? Well, the varnish itself in this case had discolored greatly, but also the fact that it had become kind of foggy. And I guess the best way of thinking about that is if imagine looking at something through a a net curtain and everything becomes a little bit gray, you can see the shapes, but especially darker tones become lighter and the whole thing becomes a bit yellow. So, Okay, so what can you do? Well, in thinning the varnish, you you, you, uh, reduce this effect significantly. You're painting stuff onto the varnish. Using solvents that are... Mm -hmm. uh, I think the thing here to think about is that kind of 
integrated understanding of why we were doing this because uh, it's not just, you know, yellow, bad, less yellow, good. In terms of the Leonardo, I think the commission starts in the 1480s and it goes on for more than 20 years. So and, he's working on the painting over there. Well, in two different theory. versions, stopping okay. and starting. It's a, a very, that's a whole other <laughs> – we could do a whole program about this commission. Um, but his interest at the time he was painting this was very much about uh, how – light works and how vision works and what happens in shadows and uh, for example the way that uh, all shadows become sort of browny black no matter what color the object and if you think about earlier renaissance painting say a blue drapery the shadow was dark blue a red drapery the shadow was dark red but he's thinking about the unifying effect of light and shade and 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 creating this compelling illusion about how you know all shadows are browny black for example and all those kinds of carefully constructed spaces in unities are really distorted by the varnish you're actually doing two things at the same time first of all you're restoring the painting but at the same time you're discovering things about how leonardo worked well that's very key to how the natural gallery proceeds with such a major restoration it's an opportunity for all sorts of coordinated research and in fact before we started the treatment we uh, did a whole series of investigations of imaging uh, with new x-ray graphs and using a technique called infrared uh, reflectography. And my curatorial colleague, Luke Sison and my conservation colleague, Rachel Billinge, made the most extraordinary discovery uh, that underneath this painting was uh, a drawn composition that had been abandoned by Leonardo, never executed, a completely different composition. A different subject. And furthermore, one that linked to some drawings and sketches that he was making, you could see in the notebooks from the uh, 1490s. In other words, all these things uh, sort of hidden beneath the painting was clear evidence about when it was started and you know what he was thinking about. Uh, and it really changed our understanding of the relationship of this picture to the one in the Louvre, and it helped us really be certain about it, how it sat in the whole documentation of the um, commission and, and when he started and, and all. really That's fascinating thing. links Sorry. to... The underdrawing contains strong links to uh, motifs and heads in, in, in The Last Supper. Mm -hmm. So it really put it in a place. And, yeah, and again, that's so exciting. it's very exciting. And I think that's when you know, the restoration is really, really wonderful to work in a place like the gallery where you have these resources and these colleagues. And it's, it's, you're part of a larger whole. Mm. Uh, mm. And then the, the kind of resonance of that is really profoundly satisfying. I want to put a last question to you, a much more practical question. That is about... Um, decisions. Who makes the decisions? The gallery owns the painting, right? Well, the nation. The nation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's interesting because in the history of the National Gallery, of course, you know, the, the act of restoration has often been mm -hmm. very contentious mm -hmm. and um, publicly argued. You know, it, it goes on. Mm -hmm. uh, advocacy groups who are not in favor of what we do, and uh, uh, there were rows going back in the 1850s that were so extreme carried out through the, you know, the one organ of public record, the Times, mm -hmm. there was actually a parliamentary uh, commission inquiry into practices of the National Gallery. Because mm -hmm. uh, people care about these Yes, things. and I think, you know, that, I think that's a wonderful testament to the, uh, to the sense of ownership. The National Gallery, for mm -hmm. example, isn't an aristocratic collection. Mm -hmm. you know, it was you know, made and conceived and developed for the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of specific decisions, so I think as I described with the Leonardo, that the idea that, you know, you're working in a mm -hmm. collegial context of conservation and science and curatorial expertise, I think all those kinds of things are teased out 
in slow motion during mm -hmm. during the treatment through lots of discussion and thinking and looking at other works and yeah. of course now the ability to really have meaningful comparative illustrations from all over the world and to have proper interaction with colleagues you know it, consensus emerges yeah. I, i'd have to say that in in the abbey it, it is much the same it's the, of course in the abbey the difference there is that it is first and foremost a working church you know as larry says we are always a part as a conservator part of a greater whole we we will put forward what we think should happen and we are the people actually doing it but it has to be done within a context of of many different colleagues and aspects of you know thinking ethics so very fascinating thank you both so much thank you marie louise sauberg mm -hmm. and larry keith thank many you. thanks and thank you for listening mm -hmm.